Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes, and it's February 14th, 2018, which means it's Valentine's Day, Ash Wednesday, and day three of Infrastructure Week, which means that instead of talking about infrastructure, we're talking about wife beating, White House cover-ups, Russian bots, immigration, the hotness of North Korea, hush money to porn stars, and whether or not Sean Hannity thinks there was, and this was his term, secret sperm in the new Obama portrait. Now, for the record, Hannity says that the post speculating about the hidden messages in the painting was not him, and he's removed the post from his uh, website. Meanwhile, uh, Republicans are getting some good and somewhat surprising uh, uh, news from the polls, especially on taxes. Joining me today to sort all of this out, Michael Warren and Ethan Epstein of The Weekly Standard. Thanks for joining me, gentlemen. Thanks, Charlie. Thank you. Now, if you want to get some perspective on what's happening with the Koreas, Ethan's recent work is indispensable, and I want to get to that in a moment. But, Michael, I want to start with you with a, with a quasi-serious question. What the hell is it with Infrastructure Week? I mean, you remember the first one last last June? It was it was notoriously shambolic. That was the week that was, was basically derailed by tweet storms, and uh, James Comey testified in front of Congress. This one seems to be playing out the same week. Is it's the same way? Is is there is there something about Infrastructure Week that just you no know, just cries out to become an an internet meme? That first Infrastructure Week, Charlie, is, feels like a century ago. Uh, yeah, which is kind of the way things operate, uh, at least for those of us covering the White House and, and even observers of the White House, I think. Um, look, the, the, I would say I would say a big and even positive difference from the perspective of the White House is that for this Infrastructure Week, there actually is something of a plan uh, that they have. And they've been promising this for, well, I, I, if you go back to the campaign, for over a year. Um, they actually finally delivered something. Um, they delivered it on Monday morning. The president had a, had actually had an event at the White House. Uh, and so I guess you can say sort of uh, you could you could reasonably say that this is more successful than any other infrastructure week in the Trump White House. But to your to your bigger point, to your larger point about how distracting these other issues and their issues in many ways uh, and, and very often of the Trump White House's own making, it crowds out uh, what what the what the sort of policy wonks and the uh, you know pointy headed guys at the White House really want to be doing, which is uh, talking about their ideas uh, for the country. Um, and I think that that's uh, that's something that is, is has been a constant for the for the Trump White House and. Why we should think it's going to be any different for this infrastructure week, I I, I don't know. And it well, is, you know, sp- speaking of speaking of pointy-headed wonks, let's talk about uh, Paul Ryan and uh, and his situation. You, you actually uh, on the website today ask the question: Are Republicans in the Trump era deficit hawks in name only? And and of course, uh, Paul Ryan's trying to explain why the uh, the budget deal and the new Trump budget that adds trillions of dollars to debt uh, is is not a complete surrender on fiscal conservatism. And and to his credit, he's saying, look, you need to make uh, structural changes in, in entitlements if you're ever going to deal with a structural deficit. Now, um, y- you asked uh, Sarah Sanders about Ryan's comments yesterday. So so tell me what uh, how the White House is 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 talking about deficits and entitlement reform. Uh, 
Well, uh, I was I was asking specifically about uh, Paul Ryan's defense of himself and his party, and and particularly the House conference, uh, which in which he said, "Look, for and I think credibly said, for years we have been in the House voting on and passing uh, some kind of budget that deals with the entitlement problem." Uh, and and when he was on uh, when Paul Ryan was on Maria Bartiromo's show on Fox Business yesterday, he said he made this defense and said, "Look, we're willing to do this. We just you mentioned this with Steve Hayes yesterday. We uh, we we just need better partners." So I asked the White House this. I asked Sarah Sanders this yesterday. Um, the, the, that Paul Ryan's assessment of the problem, that it's not just uh, a problem of discretionary spending, it's this problem of the mandatory spending that's causing a what he calls a structural deficit, um, that, that, that is sort of no amount of, uh, of tinkering or cutting of discretionary spending is going to make a difference in this sort of growing part of the deficit. This is something that Paul Ryan has been saying for years. We know that Donald Trump does not agree with entitlement reform. He made this very clear during the uh, during the campaign. But what I asked the White House is, well, what what specifically about that assessment of the deficit does the president, does the White House disagree with? Um, you know, she pointed to the fact that the the budget that the president released does. Uh, you know, cut the deficit, I guess, in the sort of rosiest scenario, um, it does make those cuts to discretionary spending. And I pressed her on, well, what about the mandatory spending? She said she didn't have an answer at the moment. And I think that uh, they they really don't have an answer to it. It's not something I think the president really is too concerned about. You could maybe even he's, manage- the, he's the king of debt, right? He lo- he loves debt, and and he he's really gone out of his way to say that uh, uh, you know that unlike other Republicans, he's not interested in he's he's not really interested in reforming in entitlement programs. Uh, and I and I guess that that puts uh, the the whole infrastructure pr- proposal in in some context because I'm old enough to remember when. Republicans had hair on fire when Barack Obama proposed infrastructure. Of course, the the numbers are are somewhat uh, different here. But we could spend more time on this. But I I want to move on to to the other big story of the day. Um, the knives out for John Kelly, the FBI director Christopher Ray testifying in front of uh, Congress yesterday. Really. Um, you know, blew a hole in the White House timeline. And, and really, you do have the feel that this is a, you know, what did they know and when did they know it? Uh, so, so Michael, let, let's just talk about this, um, wh- where we're going here and, and how damaging Christopher Ray's comments about the FBI background check into Rob Porter are for the White House narrative. Uh, they are damaging, and you could see that yesterday from Sarah Huckabee Sanders's um, response to the <laughs> numerous questions. I think actually, think my question to her about uh, Paul Ryan was the first non-Rob Porter, John Kelly-related question she received at the briefing. Um, it, it, she walked back the argument that the White House has been making for really now, I guess, the last week, which is that the investigation into Rob Porter uh, and, and particularly into Rob Porter's security clearance, this is sort of what all of this has been hinging on, um, that that was incomplete. And so that's sort of been the plausible deniability the White House has had in saying the investigation into a security clearance, which the FBI conducts, uh, had not been complete. And so we didn't know the full extent until this reporting. We didn't know the full extent of Rob Porter's uh, allegations. We believed him. We thought he was an upstanding person. We did not know this. And when we did know this, John Kelly fired him. The FBI director's testimony contradicts that and 
Sarah Sanders's response to that was, well, what what we really meant was that the investigation was continuing in the White House's own security office. I mean, she's sort of na- very narrowly uh, uh, narrowing down where this investigation was still going on. I think it's ultimately a, a problem of a not getting uh, not telling the truth. And and when you don't tell the truth, you kind of start forgetting what lies and half truths you've told. Um, and, and so the story has not been straight from the White House. Uh, and and I think it's just also it's it's revealed a weakness uh, in in John Kelly, the chief of staff's ability to uh, handle something like what should have been a uh, a, a one or two day uh, scandal. But but it's it's not. You know, there's a remarkable story in The Washington Post, which I know that everybody's seen, in which one White House official refers to uh, Kelly as a big fat liar. And, and there's this uh, this uh, paragraph. The Porter drama has become all consuming, creating an atmosphere of chaos and infighting reminiscent of the Game of Thrones stage early in Trump's presidency and distracting from the administration's budget and infrastructure agenda. And of course, early this morning, we found out that the Trey Gowdy uh, and the House Oversight Committee are launching their own investigation. So I guess the question is, uh, we, you know, this this scandal seems to be sticking in, in, in a way that almost none of the other ones had, you know, for this uh, Teflon White House. So why this one? Do you have a theory about why this one seems to uh, to uh, have staying power? Uh, well, I agree with you that it it it, it could be dealt with. Um, I sort of have this uh, fantasy image of John Kelly. I thought he might even come out yesterday at the White House and sort of give a big mea culpa, say, "Look, we we gave a guy that we've been working with the benefit of the de- benefit of the doubt. He uh, he was able to mask this." side of his personality, the side of who he was uh, to all of us. We overlooked the signs. Our fault. We made a big mistake. We were wrong to do it. But we'd like to we'd like to move on and do the business of the country. And I think that would had they done that last week, had they done that even yesterday or maybe today, it would it would solve a lot of these problems. But we should also be a little cautious about quotes like what you cited from the Washington mm-hmm. Post, big fat liar. This is a White House that uh, has about uh, three, four, five, six different factions, and they're all looking for ways uh, to get uh, uh, to get back at each other. John Kelly, I think, has had a target on his back from day one because of the sort of level of uh, professionalism in the sense of uh, the way he was controlling things going uh, uh, through the White House um, and through the Oval Office to the president. There are a lot of people in the White House very upset. I remember from the first week talking with people in the White House saying, um, you know, this is really cramping our style. It's I'm not, I'm you know, one one source of mine said, I'm not in the meetings I used to be in, and this is very frustrating. There's a there, So there's a lot of infighting that I think is fueling this as well, uh, and that's causing a lot of problems. People have been looking for reasons to sort of get back at John Kelly. Doesn't mean that he wasn't, I think I don't mm-hmm. think he's, he's not res- irresponsible here, but I think you're also seeing quite a few uh, of the knives come out that have been waiting in the wings. So he doesn't have a lot of friends there. Is this the point where John Kelly needs to get a dog uh, right. if, if he wants if he wants to have a friend? And so tell me, Michael, what is the vibe at the White House? Do people think that John Kelly is going to survive this? I don't know. I mean, again, this is this is sort of a problem of covering the White House is um, as it is with a lot of big organizations, but particularly this White House is you never know if you're getting uh, if you're getting spun into uh, and being told something that uh, the person telling you once 
to be true or if it really is true. Um, and you never know if the people you're talking to really know what's going on on the inside. It's so chaotic in, in that sort of organizational sense. But you, you, do, you do get a sense as well that, um, that this is really the first moment that Kelly has been vulnerable and has been made vulnerable. And people are taking advantage of that. You can't discount uh, that vulnerability. Uh, when it comes to this president, he's very uh, unwilling, I think, to fire people um, or to make any actions like this unless he feels like uh, we're at critical mass. We could be reaching that point. It's just really difficult to, to tell. Okay, let's uh, let's let's switch gears a little bit. I want to uh, talk with uh, with Ethan about what's been going on in North Korea. The 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 media's well documented gush um, over over North Korea. And uh, first of all, Ethan, how, how do you pronounce how do you pronounce um, the uh, her name? Is it Kim Yo? I thought you were going to ask right. how you pronounce my name, and that's just no. a good time to remind all our listeners that it's Epstein. Epstein. Uh, yeah, uh, Kim Yo Jong. Kim Yo Jong, whose whose hotness became a a huge international sensation. I want to start with the story that you had the other day. Sure. Um, CNN, you know, wrote, reported that that uh, you know what what a brilliant diplomatic flourish uh, she had done when she signed a guest book uh, belonging to the South Korean president, uh, saying you know that basically you know she she hopes the two countries, the two Koreas, get closer in our people's hearts and move forward the future of prosperous unification. And this was described as a warm message. You didn't think so, Ethan, did you? Well, it's it's as warm as me, you know, visiting your house and signing in your guest book. I look forward to uh, taking your house from you, Charlie. Um, What what does unification mean in this context? It means the annexation, in fact, of the South by the North. Um, You know, unification, I think, uh, is the appropriate long-term goal to strive for. Um, It's the, the artificial separation of the two Koreas has been, you know, a terrible human tragedy, particularly for people in the North. And South Korea, of course, its government policy is to strive for unification, but their version of unification is quite different from the North. So, I mean, the South wants to peacefully absorb North Korea, much like East Germany has been absorbed into uh, what had been West Germany. North Korea, on the other hand, wants to finish what it started with the Korean War. Um, it, its version of unification is to uh, what achieve what they call total victory, which would be to destroy South Korea and bring it within uh, the Kim cult. So, you know, that might be someone's definition of a warm message. It certainly wasn't mine. So what what actually did happen, you know, this 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 last week? Yeah, we had been obviously, um, you know, told that the, the tensions were rising and rising and rising with North Korea. We, we had all of the rocket tests. There was at least a perception that the Olympics had provided a thaw. So is this a temporary thaw? Um, is there uh, is there some movement that you see that we ought to find encouraging at all? Is is there a is there a a gap between American foreign policy and South Korean foreign policy right now? What's the state of play? So I would actually contest the notion that there's been anything but really an illusory thaw. I mean, literally the only thing that's changed is that some North Korean athletes have come over. There's been no pledge to even freeze uh, moving forward with their missile or nuclear program. So, so what we're considering victory is simply talking for talking's sake and diplomacy for diplomacy's sake. The big thing that I think the South Korean government missed here was they actually had leverage over the North and they could have, you know, North Korea clearly wanted to win some PR victories and, and sort of present themselves as normal uh, to the to the rest of the world, which is, you know, pretty tough for quite an abnormal abnormal regime, though CNN helped them with that. So I think that the Moon Jae-in uh, administration, that's the president of South Korea, it's sort of a, 
uh, leftist uh, mm -hmm. administration um, missed a real opportunity to actually push for something credible and something meaningful from North Korea rather than just welcome them with open arms. And in fact, as we learned today, actually pay the bills of the North Korean cheerleaders that are coming to South Korea. They're going to pay the $2.5 million to house, feed them, and uh, and uh, you know keep them there for the, the couple weeks of the Olympics. So uh, there was leverage, and uh, President Moon simply failed to use it. Okay, just as a perspective here, as, as as I was watching all of the the media coverage and the and the desire to to normalize North Korea, you've written about this extensively. What do Americans need to remember about North Korea and and this woman in particular to put all of this into context? Sure. So, uh, you know, some people have that have been fairly critical of the coverage to their credit have said that Kim Yo-jong is complicit in the atrocities of her regime. That is actually understating it. She's an, she is an agent of the regime. She's part of the regime. She's the head of the propaganda ministry there. She's not merely the sister of Kim Jong-un, which is bad, but she's actually part of the regime. I mean, and uh, I, I think by any objective standard, the, the North Korean regime is the worst towards its people in the world in terms of the level of social control, uh, economic control, the complete lack of freedom of conscience, free, conscience, I should say, freedom of assembly, and the sort of kleptomaniac uh, notion, of, uh, kleptomaniac uh, behavior of the regime too. I mean, they live in splendor while the vast majority are, you know, unspeakably impoverished. So uh, they're terrible. And I just want to, you know, put one thing in here, which is that the South Korean media took a totally different view of this hmm. charm offensive than did the American media. I read it extensively in the Korean press, like and things like the Chosun Ilbo, which are is really the the paper of record in Korea, and print media actually there are still more influential than they are here in the United States. Were very very hostile to this gesture, and uh, I'd say South Korean public opinion as well was quite down on it as well. So even as they charmed CNN, uh, they did not charm the South Koreans to quite the same uh, extent. Okay, Ethan, thank you. I pre appreciate that uh, very much. All right, let's have some uh, quick hits uh, before the end of the uh, end of this uh, podcast. Uh, Michael, back uh, to you. This uh, Bob Corker uh, trial balloon, uh, the Republican senator from uh, Tennessee who said that he was uh, going to retire. Now there's some speculation that Republicans are so nervous about losing his seat that he might jump back in. How seriously should we take this? I think we should take seriously that the seat is in trouble for Republicans. Um, I don't know. I, I, I simply don't know if Bob Corker will actually get back in. I think what he's hearing from uh, from Tennessee Republicans is Marsha Blackburn. She's too Trumpy. She doesn't cut it. The Tennessee Republican Party is 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 one of these parties that's very split. There is a very strong sort of uh, populist grassroots conservative element that has been awoken, I think, by the abandonment by the Democratic Party in Tennessee of that group of people, sort of more lower middle class Republicans. There's a longstanding sort of Lamar Alexander tradition of mm -hmm. uh, establishment Republicanism in Tennessee. And I think that that uh, you're seeing a lot of those people try to consider, you know, considering throwing their lot with Phil Bredesen as a former two term governor, Democrat, very uh, moderate, almost unheard of type of Democrat in the party these days. I think they're worried about it. I just don't know if Bob Corker. Look, Bob Corker could go back on his word. I think he's done uh, a lot, a lot worse. Uh, but uh, I, I just have a hard time seeing how he runs and actually beats Marsha Blackburn. Yeah, in the I, I, I can't get past that. All right. You know, in terms of the uh, the political environment, a couple of interesting developments. The Dems flipped another special election down in Florida, a Republican um, seat, but I think uh, Trump won by by five points. 
Um, but then there's a new polls out uh, from some Democratic pollsters, including um, this new po- polling memo from Priorities USA saying that uh, Democrats are failing to press their economic message, that Republicans are getting some pretty good numbers on uh, the, the, the tax cuts. Uh, what's your sense right now about uh, the state of, of play. Republican and Democrats, uh, at least after last night, were kind of jazzed about uh, what they were doing, overperforming in the special elections. But there's still some indications in polls that uh, their their margin might be shrinking. What do you think, Michael? Um, you know, this I was thinking going into 2018 that the midterm elections, at least for the House, um, were the Democrats to lose. And now I'm wondering if they're doing exactly that. Um, uh, they've they've really made a mistake in sort of making, um, uh, trying to make, uh, or acting as if Trump is uh, the Trump card, so to speak, and that they can just win because Trump is so uh, unliked and so uh, unpopular. They, they, I don't think they've counted on the fact that maybe he's uh, he could have always become a little more popular than he is, and that might be enough. And also that that's kind of, that's all kind of baked in. What they really, they, you know, if, if they've got an enthusiasm advantage here. Their voters really don't like Trump, and they want to come out and vote against Republicans. Um, but the, the, I think you, what you're seeing from Democrats here is uh, the, the smart ones going, we need to be a little more positive and can't count on the Republican agenda and Trump being unpopular enough if people are not get you know having their if people are seeing bumps in their paychecks because of this these tax mm-hmm. cuts that that that's hard to make the case that Republicans are really ruining America no matter what you think about about Trump himself you know it is interesting how the echo chambers on the left are so similar to the echo chambers on on the right because I've been making the point in on uh, in some MSNBC shows that uh, hey folks you realize the Republicans are winning uh, the the messaging war on the tax cuts uh, the Republicans are are benefiting from uh, the, the the strong economy. Um, and this thing is not a gimme. And of course, people don't want to hear that. <laughs> they really don't. Um, the Weekly Standard has a really excellent piece from my friend uh, Christian Schneider uh, about uh, the the Democratic opponent to Paul Ryan, uh, who's known as the Iron Stash, who uh, is really the darling of the left, particularly the coastal left, uh, you know, featured on MSNBC all the time. And and I've been trying to wave the flag and saying, you, you know, uh, this, this guy is a, an incredibly weak candidate. Uh, candidate quality matters. And, you know, I don't know that any Democrat would have beaten Paul Ryan. But let me just tell you, this guy is not going to do it. But again, my, my point is, is that uh, the Democrats um, are perhaps so uh, overconfident or complacent that they, they just don't want to hear it. OK, so just because it's Valentine's Day, we have to talk about this. Uh, Trump's lawyer, Michael Cohen, tells The New York Times that he paid uh, former porn star Stormy Daniels that $130,000 out of his own pocket, and that he's writing a tell-all book about it. So where is this story going? It, it's going somewhere, and, and I think um, uh, or, or incur it at reason. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm going to give him credit for this because he pointed it out that Cohen's statement on this, uh, you really could drive a, a semi-truck through. He said he paid for this, uh, this $130,000 because he had just had it lying around out of his own pocket <laughs> and that he wasn't reimbursed by either the Trump organization or the Trump campaign. Uh, well, that doesn't, that doesn't necessarily mean he wasn't reimbursed somewhere along the line. I think this is, this is one of these things that everybody thought, wow, I can't believe even a porn star getting paid off right before the election, uh, can't touch Trump. Um, 
there's a, there's a, as this story showed, there's a lot more to that uh, to that story as this development shows. There's a lot more to that story that's not being uh, not been fully explored, and a lot of questions. I think the the, the White House and the president need to answer about if uh, there was no affair. Uh, why the need to pay $130,000? It's it's really nuts. But isn't this, uh, and you mentioned this before, that a lot of things about Donald Trump are are baked into the cake. People know who he is. Um, it's really impossible, essentially, to blackmail Donald Trump because yeah, he just sort of shrugs his, uh, his, you know, his shoulders. And on Earth 2.0, this might be a front-page story. This is, uh, this is def- not even a front-page story. The president of the United States' lawyer pays off a porn star and is not leading the news, is it? No, but you know what? I think, I think Charlie, we think of these things so much when we talk about political coverage of how will this affect – you know the president's ability to win the midterm elections, or to get this this piece of legislation through, or or what have you. Um, at this point, I'm just more interested in in the truth and learning exactly what happened, um, particularly with. I guess you'll have to buy the book then. Mike. Yeah, I yeah, know. Yeah. Well, that's uh, clearly this <laughs> yeah. is uh, this is. I, you I can't, can't wait. To you read can't it. handle the truth. <laughs> Let's truth. start there and then and then draw some conclusions once we know the truth. Well, thank you, gentlemen, and thanks for listening to the Daily Standard Podcast. Now, a quick reminder for you guys, and this, by the way, applies to you, uh, Michael and Ethan. It is Valentine's Day. So uh, if your significant other, I don't know if they've done this, uh, have told you, hey, don't bother getting me anything or doing anything special. It's a trap. <laughs> just, just don't fall for it. You know this, right? Absolutely. You, you know, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, 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 do know, you do know this. You know, every year somebody will say this and go, no, but you told me not to do it. Just, just don't do it. So we will be back tomorrow for day four of Infrastructure Week. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in. Thanks.